Note that the kids are running to their class. I like to see that, don't you? They're running away from you. I can understand. Oh, they're not running away from me? Uh-uh. Uh, Sheila was the one leading them. Maybe they're running away from Sheila. That's my story anyway. Hey, today we're going to return to the book of Jonah. We started last week, if you remember, a journey with Jonah. That's what we're calling it as we put ourselves in a situation where we're going to walk a while with Jonah in his steps. Wherever Jonah's going is where we are going. Now, we found out last week that Jonah had been called to go to preach to the Ninevites in the great city of Nineveh. So ideally, in our walk with Jonah, we will be going to Nineveh to preach with Jonah to that wicked, ruthless group of people that live in Nineveh. Now, remember also this, that as we begin our walk with Jonah, it's going to take a month to get there. We're supposed to go to Nineveh. It's going to be 550 miles that we're walking with Jonah to get to Nineveh if we decide to obey. And just to kind of put that in perspective of how far we would be walking, we found that if we left here and walked south, it would land us in 550 miles, relatively speaking, in Tallahassee, Florida. That's the area we're walking. That's the distance that we're going to be for a month with Jonah. Or, remember, if we decide to go north, we'd be in St. Paul, Minnesota. Or, if we wanted to go west, young man, we'd be in Lincoln, Nebraska. And east, if we decided to go that direction from where we are, we'd be in Richmond, Virginia. So, that's the distance that we're traveling. So, here we go again. We're in week number two of several weeks traveling with Jonah it's going to be a month. Now, wherever he goes again, we are going. So we got to tighten up our shoelaces, begin to get the most comfortable walking shoes we can, and begin to go on a journey with Jonah. Now, again, wherever he goes is where we're going. Whether that's down to Joppa, as we found in the first chapter, or whether that's going to flee as we go back and look at it again today to Tarshish, or as we find is the case today, we may even find ourselves, as we're with Jonah, in the belly of a great fish. That's where we're going to be. Wherever Jonah's at is where we're going to be. Even if it takes us in the belly of a great fish. Are you ready for that? Are you really ready for that? Because, listen, what do you think it smells like when you've been in the belly of a fish? What do you think that smells like? Yeah, it's got to be fishy. I mean, anybody that's ever been fishing for any length of time, whether it's two minutes or whether it's two hours, two days, two weeks, two months, two years, you know that when you land that fish, and if you're not Kayla, if you are brave enough to take the fish off the hook, and daddy's not with you, and you have to do it yourself, then your hands smell like what? Fish. So look, now you've been in the belly of a fish. How much do you think now, as you mentioned, it may be really fishy? In fact, you might be really ripe when you've been in there for three days and three nights. So in your journey, not only should you put me put on your best walking shoes, but maybe you need to take some extra cleaning supplies. I can't imagine what it would smell like to be in the belly of a fish for three days. I mean, having a couple hours of fish smell in my hands, it gets pretty bad. But then we're going to go wherever Jonah takes us. And today, at the end, we will land ourselves in the belly of a fish. Remember, but Jonah is a little bit disobedient. So there's a little course thing we have to do before we get to the belly of the fish. Let's find out what happens. You may already know, but let us refamiliarize ourselves with the text. All right, we're in Jonah chapter 1. It is 17 verses. Let us stand together this morning to honor the reading of the word. We'll go back and read all 17 verses of chapter 1 one more time. It says in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah, we're with him, 
rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found the ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and he cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought to us that we may not perish. Verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Well, then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And Jonah said to them in verse 9, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, verse 14, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So verse 15, they picked up Jonah and hurled him to the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Well, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And finally, then verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Father, Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word and for the story that we can receive today. We pray, Lord, as we go through this text, that it's very familiar to us, Lord, that we begin to dissect it for maybe even better, newer understanding. And we certainly pray today, Lord, that you'll speak to us. Let your spirit lead and guide and direct us today where you can find meaning and now application to our lives from this text. So, Lord, we thank you in advance for what shall happen here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, since we've already dissected the first three verses of chapter 1, let us leap into chapter 4, because we found then in verse 3, as our reading again told us, that Jonah had decided to not obey the call to go to Nineveh as we accompany him on the journey. So we are about to flee to run from the Lord. So verse 4 is where we start for today's application and understanding. Verse 4 again said this, as Jonah runs, as we're with him, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Now remember last week, we correctly noted that disobedience, Jonah is flat out disobeying the call that the Lord has told him to do. Directly to go to Nineveh, do not pass go directly to Nineveh, and preach repentance to the Ninevites. But he's disobeying. Verse 3 tells us he runs away, and so we're with him, we're disobeying as well as Jonah is in this regard to what the Lord had told him to do. Now, remember last week, as we've seen the disobedience, and as we remind ourselves today of the disobedience, that disobedience never pays a dividend. There's never a reward that we receive for being disobedient in any case in life, whether it's in work, whether it's at home, 
or whether it's in school or wherever it may be. Certainly with the Lord. Disobedience never pays a dividend. Now, as we remind ourselves of that, looking now into the text today, we go further and find that not only does disobedience never pay a dividend, disobedience quite often for all of us, especially right now for Jonah, results in God's intervention. That's what's happening now with Jonah. He heard the Lord. He knows what he's supposed to do. We're with him on his journey, and we flee with Jonah. No reward, but there's about to be intervention. So notice then, as we find in verse 4, that this is not just some small, brief rain shower. Notice how it's described. The author says it's a great wind. Even the words are used, if you notice, a mighty tempest. So much so that the ship is about to be broken. Now let's quick take a quick time out. Because I don't ever describe any storm that's ever come through our area, any place I've ever been, and said, Sheila, that's a mighty tempest out there. I don't use that word. So a quick time out. What is a tempest? And just how big is this ship that we are now on with Jonah? We ask those questions because we're accompanying him on his journey, and it helps us in our understanding. So what is a tempest? Well, a tempest is just simply a violent, windy storm, one typically associated with hard rain, high winds, and maybe even some hail. Maybe we could venture out to say, it is almost like being in a hurricane. Now, for a show of hands, who's ever been in a hurricane? Anybody? Have you? It's not pleasant, is it? I mean, so Joan is in a situation where he has all these high winds, all these things happen, and it can be perhaps described a mighty tempest like a hurricane. But although Steve's been to a hurricane, let us understand better a hurricane. The National Hurricane Center in Miami, Florida, has now, as it does each time this year, begin to give a forecast and a prediction of what hurricanes will result or could be expected for the up-and-coming season. The typical hurricane season is from like June all the way through November. This year, for 2021, the Hurricane Center has predicted that it's going to be an above year for hurricanes. They have predicted 18 named storms. You can actually go online and find out what the storms are going to be called by name. But there's 18 of them. They said of those 18 named storms, there's going to be eight hurricanes to emerge from those 18 named storms. Of the eight hurricanes, there's going to be three major hurricanes. Now, major will be described because they put it on a scale of a Category 1 through Category 5. We have, in our lifetime, in the United States, had several. Category 5s to come up on the Gulf Shore or upon somewhere near the Atlantic because that's typically where it seems hurricanes begin to hit and do most damage. You may remember we've had several hurricanes. Over the years, we've had Hurricane Harvey that came into the Gulf back in 2017 and did quite a bit damage to the Houston area and the South Texas area for flooding. The one prior to that that many of us may remember is in 2005 of Hurricane Katrina that hit Louisiana, New Orleans, did substantial damage. Katrina was intensely powerful, one of the top five storms of hurricanes that hit the United States of all time. But as powerful as Katrina was, it was not the most powerful. I found that in 1992, Hurricane Andrew had wind speeds that exceeded that of Katrina. It hit the southeast Florida, southeast Louisiana area. It had a Category 5 storm that has sustained winds of 165 to 175 miles per hour. I'm going to the races tonight. Ain't nobody going to get that close. They might get 100. They might get 90. But ain't nobody going to get 165, 175 miles per hour. You're kidding me. That's a hurricane. That is indeed a mighty tempest. So we're describing the situation that's happening here 
as we're in this boat, this vessel with Jonah in the midst of a mighty tempest can be compared somehow, some way to a hurricane. Whether it's category five, I don't know. But there's a lot of things happening in the situation with Jonah in which it's possible that the ship could be broken. It's a mighty vessel. Well, how big is this ship? And there's no information to tell us precisely just how big this vessel is that Jonah and ourselves have now boarded. It was common then that the port of Joppa would have large ships to come and carry cargo. I found that Joppa is not far from modern-day Tel Aviv, which was a port that would commonly have large Phoenician ships to come to it. The Phoenician ships were large, not of ark size, but they were large and known for carrying their cargo from one place to the other. So it's likely as we find ourselves now with Jonah to be in one of these Phoenician vessels carrying a lot of cargo to its destination, which would be then Tarshish. So we're sitting in the boat, however size it may be, without precision knowing, with Jonah to go now to Tarshish. In the midst of a mighty tempest, a great storm, the most important item to maybe recognize with all that information is that Jonah is disobeying God and is running away from God and takes Jonah and ourselves in the opposite direction of God. It doesn't say that in the text, but when you study a map, like you see the one behind me now, of where we are with Jonah, when we hear the call from the Lord, we're supposed to go east to Nineveh. But we're with Jonah, and Jonah's going to go to the west to get to Joppa to go to Tarshish. Notice the distance. Again, we talked about how we're going to be 550 miles with Jonah to go to Nineveh. But we're five times going the other way. We're going 2,500 miles away from God. So is there, is there any doubt? If you're God, is there any doubt that Jonah has nothing to want to do with the command that you've been given? I mean, could it be more obvious to God that Jonah does not want to go? It's completely obvious. So what's going to happen? If God truly called Jonah to go to Nineveh, then God's going to intervene and say, oh, listen, Jonah, you're going to do as I tell you to do. And that's precisely what happens. God is intervening in the situation. As we find ourselves with Jonah, we're, we're watching this. I mean, it's happening to us too. That God is now intervening as we are Jonah and say, look, listen, I know that you don't want to go, but I really want you to go to Nineveh. We find here that God really is not done with Jonah. I mean, Jonah may have closed off his ear to God, to God, no more. But Jonah is going to learn God's not done with him. And gets Jonah's attention. Or at least he seems to get Jonah's attention once the sailors go down in the vessel of the ship and wake up Jonah. Jonah is so at ease with his disobedience to God. He's so comfortable with it. They can just go lie down and go to sleep. I mean, his conscience must be completely okay with the situation. But we can't get comfortable disobeying God. Jonah should not get comfortable disobeying God. So because the situation the mighty tempest has come on the boat, the sailors, the situation. And God is going to get Jonah's attention. Now, as we think about how God is now getting Jonah's attention with this great thing being upon the sea, this mighty tempest, it brings up an interesting question and thought. As we witness God now intervening to get Jonah's attention, the thought and question comes up, well, how does God get our attention? Because it can't just happen to Jonah. How does God get our attention? If we choose to disobey like Jonah is with God, does God get our attention somehow, some way as well? 
Well, there's three possible ways that we can again get God can get our attention. The first of three would be a restless spirit. Sometimes God gets our attention by making us restless. If you remember, in our study of Esther, in the sixth chapter of Esther, we find that there is a king. The king is Ahasuerus. Some translations say Xerxes. But the king could not sleep. As the king could not sleep, he's restless. Obviously, he can't sleep, he's restless. But the situation, as we learned in Esther chapter 6, is that the king, Ahasuerus, is restless because God begins to speak to him. He's like prodding him and poking him. So as he's restless in his spirit, the king asks for the annual book of records to be brought to him. As the king reviews the annual book of records, he begins to see that Mordecai, like Esther's relative, is her uncle, has once intervened for the king to save his life from a plot that people put on there to kill him. As that happened, it is recorded in the book of reports, but the king of Hasaerus finds that Mordecai has never been rewarded for saving his life. So the king then goes about that night to make sure that Mordecai will be rewarded for what he has done for the benefit of the king. But not only does that begin to happen, it opens the door then for Mordecai's greatest adversary, his enemy, Haman, who hates Jewish people, for Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to be killed. There's a long story with that, but the point is that there was a restless spirit with the king of Hasuerus that particular night that led to the the Jews being saved from the greatest enemy of Haman. God gives us a restless spirit, almost like it could be with Uhasuerus, at the precise moment that we need to get our attention. On a personal note, I lived in Texas for over 12 years. Didn't think I would ever leave the great state of Texas. I mean, I love Indiana, and I love being back in Indiana. Just didn't think it was ever going to happen. I love everything about Texas, except fire ants. I mean, I don't really like the fire ants, and sometimes they get really bad. But I like Texas, and I love living there. But there was a restless spirit that began to enter my heart. I expressed it to Sheila, and I said, God's up to something. There's some restlessness that's happening. Yeah, we're happy, we're great, all the kids are here, we got grandkids, everything's going wonderful. But something's about to change. There was a restless spirit within me. So we began to realize that God was calling us away from Texas. Didn't know where we was going to land. I just knew that God was saying, hey, go north, go to the Midwest. Began looking for an opportunity in the Midwest. God directed us amazingly to Indiana. When we got Directed to Indiana, there was three churches that was actually showing interest. Didn't ever think it would happen where I get back to Indiana. God had that restless spirit within, and now it's possible. There was one in West Lafayette, there was one in Terre Haute, and there was one in Evansville. I'm thinking, God, there's no way you move me back to Evansville where I grew up. I mean, I grew up in Princeton, in Gibson County. Evansville was just right there. That's just surely not going to happen. But that's ultimately what God had for us to do, to move back from Texas where we'd love to live back to Indiana. And we landed in Evansville. But that all started with a restless spirit that entered within. Sometimes God does get our attention through a restless spirit. And there's a second way that God can get our attention, a spoken word. God also gets our attention by using the words of other people. Such was the case at times, particularly for young Samuel. In our study on Wednesday night, we're going through 12 extraordinary women. One of them was Hannah. Hannah was barren. She could not have children. Her husband Elkanah loved her, but she could not have children. So it seemed to be that she went to the temple and she began to pray and she received word that she would have a child and she named the child that she, that she conceived Samuel. But in the prayer that she had in the temple, she said she would dedicate Samuel, her newborn baby once he was born, 
to the Lord. So after three years, she takes Samuel to be with Eli at the temple and leaves him there. As Eli and Samuel are at the temple, Samuel, the young boy, begins to hear a voice and thinks it's Eli speaking to him. Well, he runs to Eli and says, here I am. Eli says, I didn't call you, young man. Go back to sleep. That happens not once, not twice, not three, but four times. Eli tells Samuel, just say, Lord, here I am. The Lord is speaking to you. A spoken word was given to Samuel, and Samuel had to learn to listen. The Lord was getting his attention. So sometimes truly it does happen through a spoken word. Now I want to share with you something that I can only describe truly as the Lord speaking through somebody else. It happened to me while I was a plant manager for Tyson Foods working in Vicksburg, Mississippi. This is before the move to Texas. There's no other way to describe what happened except for the Lord speaking through this one person. This one person was a security guard working at Tyson Foods in Vicksburg, Mississippi. I don't even know his name. But I have begun to have, when my dad passed away, I felt like there was a change going to happen. I began to pray about the change. And as you so happened at a plant in Mount Pleasant, Texas, at a competitor, Pilgrim's Pride, not the same company as Tyson, was interested. I wasn't really interested in going to Texas. I mean, yeah, I liked it once I got there, but I wasn't interested at the time. And my dad just passed away. I thought, I'm going to go back and be in Indiana with mom. That's what I want. But the guy from Texas called, and I kind of made some excuse and ignored it. He called a second time. I made another excuse and thought, I can't go. I'm not going to be interested. He called a third time and asked for us to come from Vicksburg, Mississippi to Mount Pleasant, Texas, and just talk to them for an interview. So the third time, I finally just went. So from the third time we went, after the interview, we're headed back, and I told Sheila, that ain't going to happen. I mean, just wasted my time today. All of us just came over to Texas. I mean, yeah, we're in a real thing. We'll go back to Mississippi now and live and do whatever. So they called me to offer. I refused it. Weeks later, they called me the second offer. Made an excuse, refused it again. They called back with a third offer. I couldn't believe it. So at the third offer they called, I'm thinking, well, maybe I'm missing something. But we still didn't have a lot of interest in moving to Texas. I wanted to move back to Indiana that time. So I began to think about it really kind of dismissing it rather quickly if possible. But then one day I went to work at Tyson Foods in Victory, Mississippi. One of the guys working for me, his name was Emmett. Emmett comes into the office and says, Kurt, have you met the security guard? Remember, I don't know his name. Let's call him Joe. Joe can like, he can like speak prophecy. And I wasn't into prophecy. I was saved by then, but I wasn't into prophecy and didn't really understand it, really wasn't an adherent for it. I mean, I just almost thought it was garbage for someone to be a modern-day prophet. But he said, just listen to him for a moment. I thought, well, I guess I can't hurt anything. I'll entertain him and stop for a minute. So we had Joe to come into the office. And Joe began to get to the office and, uh, and began to speak. And then he said, hey, I want to pray with you. I was like, okay, it's cool to pray. So we closed the door, and the three of us, him, Emmett, myself, began to hold hands and pray. And this is what happened next. There's no way to explain this except for God speaking through other people to get your attention. How many times did I reject the offer? Three times. How many times did they call me to come? Three times. I'm just not interested in going. Get the idea. Get the picture. So we begin to pray. During the midst of the prayer, the security guard stops. He says, Kurt, that's an odd prayer. He calls me by name, and he says, look at me. I think it's really odd now for prayer. And looks, and I look directly at him, and he says, God is waiting to bless you, but you won't go. I think, wow, that's weird. There's nobody that knows anything about what's going on in our lives except myself and Sheila that we've been given another offer to go to Texas. But it's immediately the first thought that occurred to me in my mind was that he is talking about the offer that I refused three times to go to Texas. So I quickly closed my eyes and wanted to start praying again because my buddy Emmett now knows nothing about this. So we begin to pray. We're praying again. All of a sudden, he stops and says, Kurt. I look at him, and he says, God is waiting for you to answer. 
He's ready to bless you, but you're not listening. I'm thinking, this is totally weird. So at that moment, I'm thinking to myself, I think he's referring to the fact that I received this offer and God's got something in Texas for us to go to. So now I'm just ready for the prayer to get over with. So he ends the prayer. They get out of the office. I got on the phone. I called Sheila and said, I guess we're moving to Texas. But the point is that God will speak through other people at times to get our attention. Yeah, he can do it with a restless spirit. He can do it with a spoken word. And that's how he operates at times. But there's a third way. God can speak to us to get our attention through an unusual blessing or an occurrence. Perhaps you've had and received recently an unusual blessing. Maybe a strange occurrence has recently alarmed you. If so, it very well could be God trying to get your attention. Don't dismiss it too quickly. Because it actually happens more often than people think. They just think it's sometimes a coincidence and just dismiss it thinking there's nothing to it. But sometimes it truly is just an unusual blessing or an occurrence. I mean, it can be simple things. Like, for example, you're sitting in a restaurant and someone just paid for your meal. You don't even know it until you begin to leave. You say, here's the check. You begin to pay and someone's already done it. That's an unusual blessing. A circumstance just happened. An occurrence. It can also happen in a drive-through that way where the person in front of you pays forward. It can be a doctor's report, good or bad, that you just received. Then God may be getting your attention. It could be a call, a text, a card from a friend. God's trying to get your attention, and he seems to intervene at the right, precise moment. And that's what's happening with Jonah. God is getting Jonah's attention because Jonah is choosing to be disobedient. God is not done with him yet. And he's intervening to get his attention and have him to be in the storm of his life. And where's Jonah? He's comfortably sleeping. You're down there with Jonah. You may be suddenly shaken and awake by the mighty storm, but Jonah's sleeping. Let's go back to the text and pick up more of the story. Because we find in verses 5 and 6, the mariners were afraid. This mighty tempest is up on the boat. It may so horrific, it may break up the ship. The mariners were afraid. They cried out to God, to their God. Again, Jonah in verse 5, you see at the end, they got down to the inner part to go sleep. So then verse 6, the captain came up to Jonah, to you and Jonah, and said, what are you all doing? He took a Jonah and says, arise, you sleeper, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And so note here as we go back to the text in the story as we continue that the men aboard the great Phoenician vessel carrying cargo cried out to their God, but their God was ultimately to no help. So they wake up Jonah and say, cry out to your God, and maybe your God can help us. There's a point here that we need to recognize that they called out to their God, little G God, to try to get them to help, and he couldn't do it. Nothing happened. They go to Jonah, because no, Jonah's a Hebrew. He's explained it to them, and he said, hey, call out to your God. So notice how they went away from there, trying to get Jonah, the mighty God, to intervene. And there's a point here that isn't it amazing that some people can have knowledge of God, but still not recognize him as the only God. You know, the mariners are calling out to a God to help. And they think possibly maybe Jonah's God will help. So to recognize there is a God, but truly not recognized as that being the only God. And they call out for assistance, looking for anybody possibly to respond to get them out of the predicament they're in with this mighty tempest upon the sea. It's similar in respect, if you will, if you remember 1 Kings chapter 18, when Elijah is serving the Lord, he has 450 prophets of Baal to call upon the, their God to send fire down and consume the wood. And nothing happens. Jonah says, maybe your God didn't hear you. Call out to him louder. They do so and still nothing happens. So what's, Jonah, what's Elijah do? You remember the story in 1 Kings 18? Jonah says, or, or Elijah says, hey, go take that wood 
pour water on it, not once, twice, but three times, pour water on it, so it's water-saturated. He's going to call on the mighty God. He's going to send fire down and consume all that water-soaking wood. That's exactly what happens. The people, the Baal prophets, all realize there's only one God. And that's what it means. Now, for the mariners, for the 450 prophets of Baal, for everybody to recognize there truly is only one God. There's only one God. In the story of Jonah, the mariners must face the truth that God is powerful and only God, as powerful he is, can calm this storm. Now, interestingly, that would happen years later also with the disciples as reported in the Gospels. But here, God calms a storm, 40 afraid sailors to go to Tarshish. Let's go back to verses 7 and 8 again. Notice in verse 7, after all this is happening, now they decide to cast lots. They're interested, they're curious. Of course, God's intervention is seen once again because of the cast lots. Who's the fall upon? Jonah. The storm was the first intervention. Now they have a second intervention where the Lord has the lots to fall upon Jonah. That is no accident. Verses 8 and 9 reveal and share with us that, that Jonah tells him he's a Hebrew running from God. must have been painful for him to admit that he's running from God. But he's wrong for running from God. I mean, he's committing sin. Go further in the story to move things along a little bit to verse 10. We find then that in verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid and said, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that the, uh, he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. So Jonah said to the men, or they said to him, What shall we do that the sea may quiet down? He said to them in verse 12, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will be quiet for you. The men are not sure about throwing Jonah into the sea. They may be looking for another way to escape this storm. So verse 13 the men began to row harder back to dry land. They could not. So verse 14, it tells us the Lord, they call out to God and say, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased. They then call out to their God and nothing's happening. So they cry out to God. They themselves now cry out to God. I guess it's like you sometimes hear there's never an atheist in the foxhole. Now they are crying out to God, trying to get God to intervene and try to help them and save them. So as they cry out to God, eventually they decide then to toss Jonah out to the sea. Verse 13 told us that they would like to do so. They wouldn't really want to. They, they rode harder to dry land. But in verse 15, they finally pick up Jonah, hurled him to the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. We get to the point in the story where we have a major application. We know the story all too well. We can even skip over parts that sometimes it's meaningful. We get to the part where there's a major application coming because picture this. We know there is a mighty tempest, a great storm upon the sea. It's raging, tossing the boat to and fro. Powerful hurricane winds, tossing the ship around like a rag doll in a dog's mouth. And then suddenly, it all comes to a standstill. This raging out-of-control storm now comes to a standstill when they hurl Jonah into the sea. Now it's completely and totally calm. We know that exactly about the story. And we can quickly dismiss everything about it. The fact there was a violent storm packing high enough winds to break it apart and has stopped on a dime. Calm. No more wind. No more hail. No more rain. As we can maybe picture it. So as you picture then a violent, out of control storm coming to complete calm. Ask yourself this. For application. Is that a pictorial of my life? Has my life been out of control for years? Is God trying to speak to me and intervene in my life to have me to change my way? 
to have me to calm down, walk away from a previous life? I mean, could my life, your life, could our life be described as one of violently out of control before Jesus? And now with Jesus, is it just exactly the opposite? In your prior life, in your life now, do people see that about you, that you had this once violent past and now you're this whole new person, a whole new light with Jesus? Or do they still see the old stormy person that you used to be? I mean, at times that old person can rear its ugly head, but that should be rare upon occasion. A pastor friend of mine whose name is Mike had some repair work he had to get done on his car. Now, his car was acting up. And, you know, a lot of times when you get ready to do some work to your car, you recognize because you drive the car every day, you know exactly what it does and what it doesn't do. You know when it's messing up. But every time you take it to mechanic, what happens? It doesn't do anything. I mean, it does exactly what it's supposed to. Whatever you've had to give you trouble, by the time you take it to mechanic, it just simply doesn't do it anymore. It runs perfectly. So Mike's having some problems with his car. He takes it to mechanic. And sure enough, he takes it into the dealer, makes the appointment, goes in there, tells them what it's doing. They drive the car and nothing. It's, it's fine. There's no problem. Of course, Mike's frustrated, takes the car back home. On the way home, it happens again. He's frustrated. So he takes the car back and said, it just happened on the way home. And said, oh, okay, okay, okay. We'll take a look at it. They, he, he leaves the car with them. They drive it again, and there's nothing. They call Mike back up and said, look, we can't find anything wrong with your car. Come get it. Just take it back home. You don't need the shop. So he comes, gets the car, takes it back home. Around the week, driving around Mount Pleasant, he, he starts having the same problem again. So he goes back to the dealer, makes an appointment with the mechanic, and says, look, it's happened again. I can't help for some way you can't have it to happen to you, but just keep it for a while. I'm leaving it here. You drive it. Eventually, it's going to happen. He's a little frustrated, but he's still composed. So he leaves it with them. They drive it around a little bit, you know, around Mount Pleasant and stuff, and nothing seems to happen until one day... There's something that happens to the car. The mechanic is driving the car, and sure enough, he says, I know what this problem is. So he calls Mike up and says, look, Mike, we've got a situation to control. We know exactly what the problem is. I'm going to order the part today. It'll be in a couple of days, and you get your car back. No problem. Thank you for leaving it with us. It's good to go. We're all right. Well, a couple of days go by. Mike ain't got the first phone call. I mean, he, the mechanic had told him, we got the part coming in, a couple of days, get your car back. After a couple of days, he, he, he's getting anxious. So he calls the dealer up and says, hey, look, my name's Mike. I left the car there a couple of days ago from taking a look at it. The mechanic called and said he knows what's wrong with it. The part's going to come in. I'm just kind of calling to check on it and see what the status is. Of course, the woman answers the phone. There's nothing about it. So she says, let me find the mechanic. She goes out to the shop, finds the can't find the mechanic. The mechanic's gone. He called in sick that day. He's not there. So now, a couple of days later, he's been about the car now for quite a while. He has nothing that he can know to do with the car. The mechanic said he's got a part. He ain't there, so he don't know what the status of the update is. All right, I'll call again tomorrow. So again, frustrated, but still keeping his composure. Mike waits till the next day. Calls the dealer back up and says, look. I want to make sure they can find out what the part is. He's kind of curious about what's happening with the car. So it's going to be a couple of days. It's been a couple of days, and you just want to come pick up the car and make sure that, you know, we're good. Uh, let me get your mechanic for you. All right. Mechanic gets on the phone. He's there that day, right? He's there, and he got Mike gets on the phone, and he says, hey, this is Mike. Just want to make sure you got the part okay and then come get the car. The guy says, well, there's a problem. Mike says, what's the problem? Well, you're part got shipped to a different location. It's not here. So it's going to be a little while longer. So have you ever been in a situation where you've had something in which it becomes very, very frustrating to the point you just want to yell and scream 
because the people on the other end are completely irresponsible and you won't let them know about it? You've been in a situation? This is Mike, a pastor friend of mine, and he's getting extremely frustrated. This is happening to him in real life. But he thinks, okay, wait a minute. Let me keep my composure. When will you get the part? Uh, well, they're going to ship it out today. We should get them sometime later this week. I said, all right, well, just call me back when you get the part. Let me know when the car's going to be fixed. He's frustrated. He's angry. He's mad. But he's still keeping his composure. But here's the thing going on behind the scenes he didn't know about until later. All the mechanics, it's been weeks since he's not had his car. He first was like an idiot. They thought he was an idiot for not having anything wrong with his car. They finally discovered there was something wrong with the car. Then they got the part. Finally, they, they get a part knowing there's something wrong. Then they get shipped to the wrong location. He's getting all the runaround like we get a lot of different times. But here's what's happening in the shop behind the scenes. They were taking bets, wagers. How long is it going to be before Mike blows up? They were all taking a wager to find out how long it will be before this guy loses his top. Man. I mean, when is he going to just let us have it? So behind the scenes, he doesn't know this yet. He, a couple of days more go by, and they get the car fixed, call him back and say, Mike, we got the car fixed. So Mike goes back, and he says, hey, thanks for fixing the car. That's it. Didn't blow up, didn't get mad, was frustrated, yes. So the mechanic is bewildered. He says, Mike, it's been a while since you had your car. And Mike says, oh, yeah, I know. Well, just, you're just going to say thank you and that's it? Mm -hmm. So the mechanic now explains to Mike, I don't know how you can do that. He said, we... Mike, we actually had a bet back here in the shop, which nobody won, by the way, of when you were going to lose control and blow up and let us have it because it's all been our fault. But you didn't do it. The point of the story is there must be something different about us. Do people see something different about us? I mean, Mike, like me and you at one time, probably would have let them have it. Maybe they deserved it even for all the things that was going wrong. But he maintained his composure. The point is, old tendencies may surface from time to time. But there should be noticeably something different about us. If we've truly accepted Jesus Christ as Lord, there should be something noticeably different about us. Our life before Christ and our life now should be opposite of what it was, then and now. We may have been like a raging, out-of-control storm, a mighty tempest before, but that's not who we should be now. We should be, as you see out the window, a bright, sunny day to the people around us. So is that you? Can you be described in this particular manner, once a raging lunatic, but now a light for God? That's something that's inherent within the story of Jonah that sometimes we can quickly dismiss. That there was this raging storm, and then all of a sudden complete calm and peace as the Lord intervened. So we're about done with the story, but let us go back and finish the text. After all that is done, the raging storm, the tempest, everything has stopped. Go back to verse 16. Because notice how the people are watching. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They watched all this happen. They were experiencing the storm of their life. They threw Jonah aboard. Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew. I serve the God. The storm ceased. So the men feared the Lord, all capital letters, God himself. They feared him exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now notice the men now are even to have a change in their life. To what extent? We don't, we don't know for certain. But they've had, this, they've had this change that occurred while they're on the boat. And now they're afraid of the Lord, maybe respectful to the Lord and reverence of him and his awe. 
in making the vow. We'd like to think the vow is them beginning to turn their life to the Lord, but there's no complete evidence of that. Maybe it's the case we want to add to the scripture. But notice how they begin to recognize at least God. And then it comes to the complete end. It all ends then at the end of chapter 1, which we'll lead into next week, in which God gives Jonah his servant, he's got his attention, gives him a second chance. Verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Notice how the God provided for Jonah, rescued him, and is going to provide for Jonah a second chance. Isn't God wonderfully compassionate to offer all of us multiple chances? I cannot stand up before you and tell you the first time I heard of Jesus Christ, I accepted him as Lord and Savior. I cannot tell you that happened. I can tell you that a compassionate, loving God had someone to come back into my life, a second, third, fourth, maybe even a fifth chance. And I finally accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. So we end today with this portion of our walk with Jonah, recognizing that we have a wonderfully compassionate God who gives people multiple chances. We're so quick to cut people off and never give them another chance. Fortunately, we aren't God because God gives us multiple chances. He does with his servant Jonah, and he does with us as well. So maybe today is the day that God has given you another chance a second, third, or fourth, for you to finally come to truth and accept his son as Lord. Maybe today is that day. Father, Lord, we thank you for this message we have here today. We thank you, Lord, for the way it begins to speak to us as we begin to unravel and dissect an account that we're all familiar with. So, Lord, let us be thankful today for what you provided for us to consider and to reflect upon. We thank you, Lord, for intervening in our lives in the ways that you do. Perhaps, Lord, it's times we may notice. Perhaps at times we do not notice. But, Lord, today as we come to completion and for this portion of the message in our walk with Jonah, I'm going to pray for all of us today that, Lord, we take a moment, that we would truly listen, and that we would decide to obey. But if we decide not to obey, that you will intervene in our lives, Lord, and let's be attentive to that. Let's begin to realize now that you will speak to us and let us listen. So, Lord, I pray for all of us today. And speak to us now, Lord, as we have our time of reflection upon the message you have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.